Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital across our funds and our syndicate is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech globally. Uh, this interview is led by me, Michael, the GP of Climate Capital's BioFund. And today we are interviewing Moji, uh, the co-founder of Semvita. So Moji, uh, do you mind taking a minute or two and telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. And uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on this podcast. I've been really looking forward to this. I uh, started off my career in the energy industry. Uh, I moved to US from Iran in 2008. And I worked in the industry for a number of years. And I got more interested in inter interdisciplinary sciences and startups. And that led me down this path, um, you know, uh, last company, uh, we did DNA sequencing uh, in oil and gas, and that led to learning more about biotech and, and what I do now. So just um, for folks that may never have heard those words together, what is DNA sequencing in oil and gas? Um, and what were you working on then before Samvita? Yeah, so that was quite fascinating. Uh, basically, we we're looking at microbes that are in the subsurface, uh, in mm -hmm. the water, in the rock, in the oil. And we're looking at their DNA, uh, basically, and using that as a new data source to build kind of 23andMe type maps for the subsurface um, so that you could, you know, give us a water sample, for example, with no, no metadata. And we could tell you this is from this region in Texas at this depth, just comparing to the, to the reference that we've built. Um, the company was, you know, one of our main investors was Illumina. Uh, mm -hmm. which is you know, for those who know Illumina is the reason that DNA sequencing is, you know, uh, affordable. Yeah. And, um, through that, I learned about biotech as someone with initially with engineering background. And I, I realized, you know, DNA sequencing is a tool, but the tool set is bioengineering. Uh, and it's starting to really become available in, in ways that we haven't imagined before. And, an outcome of that could be use cases in new industries that people haven't imagined before. So eventually, we, you know, along with my co-founder who comes from that biotech background, we decided to take, you know, that tool set and apply it to climate tech and energy transition at, at Samvita. Awesome. Let's get into the origin story a little bit more of Samvita then. Um, how'd you meet your co-founder and you know, what was the impetus for leaving that prior work and starting something new? Well, I met my co-founder a long time ago, about <laughs> 37 years ago <laughs> when I was born because uh, my co-founder is my sister. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's really fun to be able to work with family uh, and knowing, you know, good intentions and seeing each other every day. But, um, you know, growing up, I al always pursued mathematics and physics and engineering Whereas Tara, my co-founder, has always been in uh, biological sciences and biochemistry. Uh, we, we took different paths, uh, you know, for career, for college. Uh, she actually was a vet um, for a, a while. And then she got another PhD in biochemistry. And eventually when she moved to U.S., she was doing projects with tissue engineering, stem cell programming. And this happened to be at the time where I was looking at DNA sequencing for the subsurface. So um, even though we've never imagined that what we do has any kind of um, overlap at all 
<laughs> but um, through some of those organic conversations, you know, we 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 decided, you know, let, let's do this together. If, if this idea of bringing uh, industrial biotech uh, on the table for new use cases in energy transition, uh, with the knowledge that I had of the industry and the background that she had in the science and technology, so that really became the the origin of Sambita. What kind of prompted you to stop the kind of prior work you were doing? You said Illumina was an investor in that startup and mm -hmm. have Sambita be a separate and new entity. Yeah. So, you know, prior to that, uh, company Biota was the previous startup. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I joined that company was because uh, when I was working at a big company before that, I, I realized that the big company thing is not quite for me. It's just the, the, the climbing the corporate ladder, which I, I did, and I was doing a pretty good job at it. But, you know, just the, the timing of it and the, how fast it could move and flexibility to do things that are a little bit crazy was mm -hmm. a bit limited. So I, I did decide, okay, you know, startups could be a better fit for me. And when I joined Biota, it was really for me to, to learn from inside how it works, um, you know, and, and kind of get that knowledge firsthand. Uh, for them, it was also especially interesting to me because of what they were doing, you know. Um, yeah. So the whole time for me, it was pretty much like going to university, just taking notes on, you know, how startups work, basically fundraising, board meetings, all the details. And so once I, you know, was there for about two, two and a half years, I, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready now to to take the next step, which is having my own uh, startup. And it just so aligned with uh, Tara's background in this direction, which I'm, I'm I'm so happy that it did. But it was a bit of a transition. You, know, you have some entrepreneurs who are like, they tell you, you know, since they were five years old, they were like selling trash bags, go to the wall <laughs> and just, you know, all these other ventures. Um, I wasn't one. Of, I was, I'm not one of those. I was, I thought I would be at a big company and just becoming a VP or C-level at the big company. Mm -hmm. uh, when I came to US, uh, I did that um, on that track and realized, you know, this is this wasn't what I thought. So I kind of landed on the um, you know entre entrepreneurship track from there. Makes sense. And was Tara hard to convince to kind of take the risk of being an entrepreneur with you, or was that something that you know she was excited about? Did the idea come from? You, it sounds like, and then you you kind of brought her on board. How did that happen? Yeah, so I mean, Tara took a lot of risk too because um, you know she was on this great track at Tulane right. University doing a postdoc, and he, here I am asking her to leave that and move into our guest house so that we could bootstrap <laughs> this thing for you know another two years. And right, a lot of that was new to her. But I would say also she also had her first year of a bit of frustration with the academic environment and uh, being able to bring ideas to life and have a skin in the game in the ownership of the ideas, right? Um, so we, even though we had different reasons, but having our own company was was the vehicle allowing basically for her ideas to be protected, to be hers, and to for her to to have a chance that. Uh, being there to rip their words and directly responsible for bringing it to life. And my job was to see, okay, out of all these ideas, which one do we go with? And what's the business model? How do we explain it to a non-technical non audience? 
which is, you know, it's a, it's a common issue with all deep tech and, and companies that have a lot of people from academia. Um, Absolutely. You know, so that became, yeah, that became the basis of something that actually then we scaled. Like even in, in our company today, there's a lot of uh, PhDs and postdocs who come from academic type setup and then the rest who come from the industry. So that, that challenge that Tarn had at the beginning that we figured out, then we had to figure out and scale it. Um, you know, as the company grows. So just for our audience, let's set the table here. Can you give the overview of the problem you're solving and how you solve it? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the problem at a high level is climate change, right? But <laughs> the way we're solving it is by really bringing industrial biotech as a, as a tool, right? And um, across the past seven years, we have identified specific applications um, of industrial biotech. Right now, there's three main ones. Uh, first one is in microbes eat CO2. So like CO2 mm -hmm. utilization, turning that into things like, uh, renewable feeder stocks that could be used to make things like sustainable aviation fuel, you know, biodiesel and, and biofuels, uh, other biochemicals. Uh, the second uh, category is we, we have a new way of producing hydrogen. Uh, what we call gold hydrogen is basically mm -hmm. Going to depleted, uh, oil and gas reservoirs, introducing a package of, uh, microbes and nutrients that use the subsurface hydrocarbon as their feeder stock and turn that into hydrogen, which we produce on surface. And then we have, um, the third division, which is around, um, applying biotech to mining and metal extraction. Mm -hmm. And so there we have microbes that could leach or bioleach copper from low grade ore. Uh, as well as microbes that could extract lithium from lithium clay, uh, which we have this big deposit for in the U.S. So it's not brine, it's, it's clay in the U.S. So yeah, those three have become kind of the basis for this platform that we have for industrial biotech. And we've set, you know, unique structure to be able to uh, commercialize these different pathways so that this doesn't stay as kind of like a high level research. Got it. And just for audience members who might be less familiar with the climate tech industry, you know, hydrogen is one of the main alternative fuel sources uh, that is coming online is a replacement to oil and gas. And copper is one of the key components that's needed for all batteries, um, everything from your iPhone to mm -hmm. an electric vehicle. Um, and Certainly, I think aviation fuels is something that everyone is familiar with. So if you can make mm -hmm. that by consuming CO2 rather than burning it, then that's a huge, huge um, improvement from a sustainability perspective. Is there anything that you found that about kind of the status quo Moji in these industries that people would find surprising or most people don't know? Yeah, I mean, we, we work with heavy industries, right? Like legacy oil and gas mining and, uh, you know, a lot of our team members have worked in those industries. Um, so I think what, what people find surprising is that they, they have a perception of who are the leaders in this, in organizations, but the reality is the backbone of a lot of what they do are kind of millennials right now <laughs> that are going to have, you know, they're not babies anymore, right? So like 10, 15 years of experience coming up the ranks being directors, VPs, and they have different views about the future and their you know, causing and bringing about a lot of good change within the companies to transform themselves. 
So that's a really positive uh, movement that's happening. And if even if you look at a lot of the founding teams of climate tech companies, they come from that category because they work in those industries. They uh, understand the pain points and what goes into actually building, you know, um, infrastructure and assets, and then coming and, and doing it themselves. So that that's I would say is a interesting observation. Um, having worked yeah. with people outside of Houston. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think Simvita to me has always been a really interesting example of a different kind of founding setup, a different ecosystem. I think most of the time when when we think of startups and even climate tech startups, you're thinking people leaving big research universities and like commercializing um, something they've developed in a lab or people in Silicon Valley and in tech who are trying to apply technology. And and you all are, you know, based in Houston and you are more, I feel like, connected to the traditional oil and gas industry than the audience might expect. So I'm curious, you know, if that has been a positive, a negative, um, neutral, and, you know, if there are misconceptions about the role that oil and gas is playing that, that you can help um, teach our audience about. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, I remember when we were pitching for our Series A, like in 2020, <laughs> great timing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The... When I was pitching to investors out of New York or out of the, you know, California, um, once we get into the conversation about, oh, we're, we're based in Houston, that was, I could feel a, a little bit of an unease or like, you know, um, mm-hmm. what's the bummer? Like this would have been so, so much better if it was not there. It was like in California. <laughs> uh, but when I talk to them now for our Series B, it completely has changed. Because uh, investors have realized for things that are deep tech and infrastructure, um, we need those who who have had more close exposure to how these projects are funded, capital projects. You know, uh, it's a big deal like, to be able to pull this off from that TRL kind of three to four to to seven and eight, mm-hmm. building that first of a kind. And this is a some of these industries. I mean, that's what they have been doing, right? So. Why not retool that expertise, leverage that expertise, and um, allow the a lot of the experts within those industries, uh, on one hand, to to help companies like us, right, uh, and then on the other hand, to participate. Because if you want to actually bring this change, you know that fundamentally they have to also change. So um, it should not be just something that they would decide on their own that they want to go in that direction. I think as the ecosystem bolts up, that helps, right? So think about, you know, Oxy has been one of our biggest investors and supporters, right? And mm-hmm. when we started the ethylene project, Oxy assigned their chief process engineer to the project. And initially, he didn't know much about biotech, right? But if you go to one of the meetings now, He's asking like, well, what plasmids are we going to use here? And <laughs> you know, he's learning all these things, and it's really fascinating, like that, that cross fertilization of ideas. Uh, because at the end of the day, I mean, even if you buy it, it's like you could boil it down to chemistry, right? And they understand that, but they also understand, okay, once you have the proof points in the lab and you scale things up so that you have that initial block, block flow diagram and the Aspen model, 
then they know how to go and build it. And what is the right EPC company? How are they going to fund it? All those things. So we picked that collaborative model for that reason. And I think um, more and more other investors in climate tech are, um, you know, supporting the idea that let's let's work together because the problem is is really big when we got to work together um if you want to be successful if you want to be successful in the time frame that you know is needed yeah uh, absolutely i mean i think many people think about you know oil and gas as the villains of the climate tech and climate change story um, and certainly from from the fund side, there have been many conversations at the fund manager level of, oh, should we, you know, should we or should other funds take money from oil and gas? Um, and I, I think that you guys represent a very realistic viewpoint, which is, hey, these folks have the engineering expertise to accelerate solutions. So you know, and, and, and increasingly the willingness to do that. And, um, they've certainly, it seems like been great partners with Simvita. And, uh, that seems like a very pragmatic partnership that allows you guys to scale and succeed faster than you would otherwise, which is, in my view, a good thing. <laughs> um, just, just to kind of give some context for a couple of things you said, you mentioned, TRL going from like a three to a seven for people that haven't heard that term before TRL represents technology readiness level. And it's just a way of talking about a standard scale of how commercializable and scalable a new technology or a new you know piece of hardware is. Um, so going from a three to a seven goes from kind of early stage, not necessarily proven out at scale to, you know, demonstration plant or pilot plant or multiple plants, multi bigger scale. Um, and you had said you were working with someone from Oxy on your ethylene project. Um, for people who don't know what ethylene is, which project is that? So ethylene is, uh, is the biggest organic molecule in the world. Uh, we, we don't have like ethylene, you know, in, in our fridges, but it's in everything pretty much that we own. <laughs> it's, it sits at the very top of pretty much all polymers and plastics. Um, and we have this project that we've been working with Oxy. It's so ongoing where basically our team, uh, you know, took a, took a gene, uh, for ethylene production from a banana and engineered it into a, a microbe that could now eat CO2 and produce ethylene. So we've gone through cycles in identifying the best pathway, both for the work that needs to be done inside the microbe, as well as the scale up. And so it's been an ongoing project and very, um, you know, uh, supported, but also the Oxy team is really interested. Uh, for them, it's also because they, they produce ethylene, but they also buy a lot of ethylene and mm -hmm. all of that goes into the production of, um, basically what an intermediate that then becomes PVC. So if, if you want to, you know, decarbonize, uh, PVC, it is starts with ethylene. That's why Oxy wanted us to focus on the ethylene part. Got it. And, you know, certainly just on this topic of partnerships with, you know, kind of existing corporations, I think one problem that is common from companies that are earlier stage than where you all are is they say, Hey, we've got this really interesting piece of technology. 
this interesting way of doing bioengineering or whatever it might be, but they haven't yet figured out the way in which to turn that into a business um, and making some you know something into a business is what allows it to scale and become sustainable. Um, so it seems to me like working with Oxy and, and others has helped you all to really understand of the many things you could do with bioengineering, which ones there's a market for, which um, you know also represents existing chunks of market share that are producing greenhouse gases that could be decarbonized. Does that seem right? My, I don't want to put. No, you're exactly that. right. I mean, it, it could be quite frustrating if if you have the idea, but you don't know which one actually could come to life. Um, and it's also, I mean, we're lucky in that right now we're, we're able to have a bit of a range of projects from low-hanging fruit to like a moonshot type projects. Mm -hmm. Early on, you, you just have one or two shots on gold and before you die, right? So you have to get it right, which is why it's really important to have that customer feedback. Like when we went to Oxy, our first meeting was, hey, here's our 30 molecules we found based on the literature that could potentially be made from CO2. Now, is there something that you're making a lot of or you're buying a lot of that resonates uh, that maybe you, you've seen this list? And that's that's when they picked ethylene. It's like, yeah, this one. And so <laughs> right this there, is the one we need. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of um, de-risking that happened there. And then they were also willing to fund that initial project. Now, of course, there is complexities that could come from that in terms of uh, ownership, IP, exclusivity, things like that. Uh, but that's like the second layer. I think as a startup, you first want to make sure you don't die, you right. know, and then, and then you kind of, you do negotiate to the degree that you can. So how did you, for other people who are, are earlier stage in their startups, how did you, you know, connect with Oxy and convince them, you know, to think about partnering with you um, and build that trust where they thought, even though they're a startup, reasonable people that we we want to work with. Okay, so I have a funny story about this one. And it, it, it involves both Tara and me. The meeting where we first made that connection with Oxy was a, I got invited to an investment banking conference where I had a presentation about CO2 utilization. And my pitch was, you know, why isn't oil and gas taking an active role in CO2? capture and utilization. You know, this mm -hmm. is kind of 2018 where we had carbon engineering other companies, but oil and gas wasn't leaning in yet, right? And uh, Vicky Holub, CEO of Oxy, also had a presentation. And this is before they officially launched the Oxy Low Carbon business, right? Mm -hmm. But she was dropping hints about, hey, we have these big plans. We're going to focus on CO2, decarbonization, carbon management is our future. And I told uh, Tara, you know, that's Vicky Holub, CEO of Oxy. Um, you, you need to tell her about what you're working <laughs> on, what we're working on. Yeah. And, um, you know, Tara is not, if you've spoken with Tara, is not like a salesperson or by any measure. She's very, very stoic, very kind of a scientist profile. But if she's on a mission, she would get it done. So mm -hmm. she, after Vicky's talk, she actually followed Vicky. And from what I understood, on the way back from the bathroom or something, they, they made the connection and uh, um, Vicky loved the idea and said, okay, yeah, there's someone you need to talk to. Um, so they exchanged cards. That email came from Vicky. We went and met with uh, Rob Zeller, who then became kind of uh, leading the 
technical part of Oxido Carbon Ventures. And that is the person who said, yeah, this one, ethylene. So that, that helped in, in terms of the getting the foot in the door. But yeah. the other thing that helped was if that was Tara alone going into that meeting, that would have been difficult for them to then trust to say, yeah, and then we're going to fund it and everything else. But when I went there, I've already been to that office like hundreds of times with my previous companies and mm-hmm. I understood the culture and like the executives and how they think and, you know, what goes into what they expect from this project. So when we pitched it, the proposal, it was not like just like a science project. We included the TEA, the LCA, all that stuff in the proposal. So uh, with the goal being to give the decision maker kind of a tangible business framework for what what go what happens next and it just came together nicely so that goes to what we were talking about earlier about the importance of either the founders or if they hire someone early on who understands that industry the culture of the industry and everything else to match honestly it's it's a disservice to the science if you don't do that because you're making it really yeah. hard for it yeah. to, to break through right um so yeah you need both it's a translation problem. I think, and I, I, I totally agree. I think that that industry knowledge is, is really critical. And a, a lot of what we've been talking about for the last few minutes has been really big picture, kind of the process of finding product market fit um, for an early stage company. And I'm curious, just high level, how has kind of your product market fit uh, changed and, or at least your view of it as Samvita has evolved? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think, uh, our mission of bringing industry biotech to energy transition, that mm-hmm. has a change, but that's very broad, right? Yeah. Uh, what has changed is a lot of really, I mean, the industry has changed a lot just across the past three years. I'll give you an example. Initially, Tara and I, we were not very excited about fuel pathways. As, as opposed to chemicals for CO2 utilization, right? Yeah. When we first met, your the entirety of your pitch was about chemicals. Um, yeah, and yeah. that seems like it's really taken a backseat to some of these other um, approaches. Love to hear how you all went through that process. Yeah. I mean, um, the reason for that, because we have to understand the reason was with chemicals, it's also a method for sequestering the CO2. When mm-hmm. you make a polymer, it becomes, you know, PVC under someone's house, as opposed to fuel, you burn them again. At best, it's carbon neutral, right? That's, that's the reason right. why I wasn't very excited. But as we explore the market, it's like, okay, well, this is a new technology. Initially, it's gonna, you know, have a higher cost to make. And then it's gonna go through that curve of lowering the cost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened learning that, wow, there's so much benefits and credits and need available for fuels that are not available for chemicals yet uh, because the policy is, is not being influenced and people don't know as much about that part. So we could we could work on that. But in the meantime, we should see this also as a transition. And as the more that we learn about this, the need and the impact um, for sustainable aviation fuel, uh, the, the way that it's done today, where the feed stocks are secured either from something like a soybean oil or like use cooking oil, animal fat and things like that, that are not scalable, also having uh, other impacts on the environment. We said, okay, you know, altogether, this could be a stepping stone. And then once we build a platform, even if the current use case is for SAF down the road, we could use the same platform mm-hmm. for chemicals. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the point is to keep an open mind because we started with this idea, but then, um, you know, as you learn more, the market matures, especially for something like climate tech that is in real time. It's just, it's an industry in real time being built, right? So um, same thing is happening right now. If you think about hydrogen, like there is a lot of different focus on methods to make it, but the use case is still a bit of a question, right? Like what, what is the main use case? How is the hydrogen you know, transport it to the use case. And that is going to impact what technologies are better positioned. So if, if you're in the, that business, you know, you have to pay attention to that. Like it's, none of these things happen in, in silos. So anyway, I mean, yeah, just keeping an open mind is a, is a huge part of, and like I said already twice, it's like the, the first job is not to die as a startup. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do to survive another day. But, um, you know, yeah. yeah. Making sure and that's aligned with the vision is, is important as well. Absolutely. And on the topic of you know, first job of a startup is not to die. Can you tell us the story of a problem or crisis that Samvita's faced and um, you know how you navigated it and what you learned from it? Yeah. I mean, um, we've had a few of those, to be honest. Uh, every uh, every startup has <laughs> yeah but sometimes they paint like a super rosy picture as like as if like there's never been any issues <laughs> which is just not true but yeah i mean the series a was tough to be honest because we, we kind of the timing uh with covid just didn't help and it was at a time where investors were still trying to figure out do we trust to do this remotely we asked you to meet the founders and visit and everything else so um that was that's tough to pull off, and, and we're grateful for those who trusted us, including uh, you, Michael, and, and your team, and believed in the vision, you know, and came the Absolutely. other. Absolutely. The other area I would say we've had a lot of learnings is just the hiring process, and like, man, like how important it is to really do a lot of the legwork upfront, uh, you know, because climate tech has become one of those areas that everyone wants to be in it, you know, so that just raises the bar for due diligence and core values and how we think about talent and talent development beyond just the hiring process, uh, definitely not to be underestimated. So we've gone through revisions and like fine-tuning uh, systems and processes, um, you know, to allow us to, to hire good people, but also to scale and to be a place where uh, there's growth opportunities where it's viewed as, um, you know, um, Doing something that has a lot of impact, but also for everyone here to grow as professionals in their own area and, and not hit kind of uh, uh, plateaus of, of kind. So a lot of learnings there. So, you know, if, if you were going to give advice to an entrepreneur with an early stage climate tech company within, you know, biotech or otherwise, um, what what have you learned or implemented around either fundraising and or hiring i don't know about advice but sharing my experience is <laughs> if you just focus on executing the milestones that you have set and as long as you do that and that's going well other things will, will come to you like you could attract good investors you could attract good talent you could do that right the issue is when people think that that's some sort of a game so uh, it's not as important for me to actually have a solid business if I learn how to better pitch, if I learn how to make a nicer presentation, if I mm -hmm. you know, 
learn how to better explain the vision. I mean, those things are important, but it's like the core of the business. And that's where I think the role of the co-founders is so important to, especially if they come from backgrounds, kind of like mine, who, who I, I had a chapter doing the technical work, but then it got more uh, big picture, right? So you have a tendency to want to do more of those things, but focusing on actually executing, getting more milestones, I think just it speaks volumes for all the good things that then will, will happen from there. Got it. And on this topic of advice, as an entrepreneur, what's the most helpful piece of advice you, you've ever received? Is there anything that sticks out to you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I do follow certain people and, and certain, um, if you will, philosophers or people mm-hmm. that, as a way of life. But I think uh, the best advice I got was pretty generic and pretty simple, but very powerful. And it was, you know, I was talking to an entrepreneur that I really respect. And we, we had, I landed this call after like six months of trying, you know, and we're talking for 30 minutes. We ended up talking about everything, but re- anything unrelated to business, basically, just like about <laughs> hometowns and growing up and wine, this and that. And I was waiting for him to, to spill the beans a little bit, like, you know, just uh, share some of the secrets to, to his success, but nothing really happened. And then right before the call, before he hung up, he just said, you know, believe in yourself and, and follow your passion. And I was like, well, that's it. I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of layers to that, of course, but as long as that you have that belief that whatever the thing is you're trying to do, that you could actually do it. Like if you yeah. actually believe in it, you could actually do it. Um, and especially if you're founder that then resonates throughout the company. Right. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is like to make sure that that is something that's in tune with your inherent passion and capabilities, because if you're passionate about something, you, you do more of it, you put your heart into it. Then because of that, you're going to do a better job because of that, you're going to get better at it. And then that feeds your passion. So it just, it, it's just the same thing with athletes, same thing with artists. Uh, that's why they have that really attention to the specific details that others miss. And that's what makes them so great is because they're passionate about it and they just become better at it. So that was, that was my takeaway from that, you know, short, believe in yourself and just follow your passion. Love it. And couldn't agree more. I think the ability to work on something that just makes you happy to be doing the work will always end up with you doing more and learning more and pursuing further than someone that that doesn't intrinsically enjoy it. Right. Um, And that's an advantage in itself. So just to kind of wrap things up, um, is there anything that you want to share uh, with our audience or anything that our audience can do to help you? Well, I'm glad you asked uh, because I was going to just mention, like, honestly, just the takeaway. If, if people would start to see, let's say, an oil and gas company or mining company, not mm-hmm. as that, but as a natural resource company. And, and same thing for people who are working in those companies and their CEOs. If they see their company as a natural resource company, because at the end of the day, that's where they're getting the feeder stock for everything that they do, right? And be on this mission to reduce the overall carbon and environmental footprint of what they do, you know, and compete to be able to still, you know, have the same price for the product. I think that's really the, the winning factor. Um, and then within that main message, the, the two things that, 
um, we really focused on and is becoming the, the, the pillars for why these solutions could scale. Number one is really looking for opportunities to leverage the existing infrastructure. Because a lot of times people are really excited about all these announcements that all these new things are going to build. But there's a lot of existing infrastructure that could be retooled. And that's also a way to bring the capex down for new solutions. Mm-hmm. So think about all the retrofitting that could be done to refineries. And then even in the case of gold hydrogen, we're basically using the subsurface as a bioreactor, you know, and for subsurface biomanufacturing. So that's a beautiful reuse of that infrastructure. And then the second thing is I feel uh, and my worry is that there's a lot of focus on reducing the carbon footprint. And to some degree, sometimes that is starting to put the environmental footprint in the backseat. Mm. And in some cases, they actually also go against each other. For example, if, um, you know, you're using questionable biomass, for example, to, to then supply to bioenergy mm. because you don't want to use natural gas. Okay, that's fine. But you also could be contributing to deforestation. Yep. So how do you then quantify the value of, you know, deforestation compared to saving this much on, on CO2? Other examples of the use of feeder stocks that come from agriculture. Yep. Like if you're using soybean oil to make SAF, you know. SAF being sustainable aviation sustainable fuel. aviation fuel, right? Yep. With the soybean, you're also, it's food versus feeder stock. It's land use, water use fertilizer use all of those things which right now there's a bit of okay because it's not oil and gas it must be better to do right. that <laughs> right now we're saying well wait a minute let's let's take a step back let's look at holistically carbon as well as environmental footprint like in mining and metals that's another huge topic right like you look at the footprint of mining operations a lot of it is environmental it's not the carbon footprint i mean right mining right. does have a good amount of um, carbon footprint, but that's mostly energy use in crushing rock and moving rock and big trucks, fuels and things like that, right? It's not the the mining process itself, but it's the environmental footprint. So, and our hope, you know, in our company is to find that balance on on the carbon side by using CO2 as a feeder stock on the environmental side by uh, introducing alternative feeder stocks for things that were coming uh, traditionally from kind of agriculture mm-hmm. and then um, integrating biotech in processes like mining, you know, for example. Um, so it's it's a big, big topic. I think it's really going to become a hot topic about five to 10 years from now. Uh, <laughs> but it's just something that I think about that, you know, and I, I mean, I would love to hear ideas if, if your audience also thought about different angles of this and, and if there's opportunities for collaboration. As far as contact, I, I mean, my LinkedIn is probably the best way to do it. Just uh, Moji Academy on LinkedIn. Got it. Yeah, I think um, the story of climate change and sustainability is evolving where you really have to figure out how you want to balance kind of conservation versus growth in terms of solutions, right? Mm-hmm. There are certainly places where you can say, great, you know, maybe we don't need to, you know, use as many resources um, because we can just, you know, consume less. And there are other places where we can say, hey, we can can or need to consume the same amount, but we have ways in which we can create what we're consuming that are more sustainable, but those still require 
mining and um, energy and, you know, even if these industries become smaller, they're never going to go away, right? That's a critical part of how how we run our world. And so we got to figure out how to how to make those balancing kind of points work. And I, I agree with you. I think like when we think about battery transitions and, and electric vehicles, mining lithium comes up frequently, right? And there are lithium deposits in the United States that we perhaps could mine. Um, but we would have to then create a mine where right now, you know, maybe you have endangered species or, um, you know, otherwise wilderness that you would prefer not to destroy. And, and like electric changing from uh, combustion engines to electric vehicles is good. Conservation is good. Yet you still have to make a choice um, between those two. And it's a complex thing for sure. Definitely complex. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm um, going to COP28. So I'm really, really looking forward to see what the conversations are going to be. You know, because people look at that as where humanity is supposed to come together to give some yeah. guidelines. But like, what are we doing? Where are we going? How are we going to go about this? Because it's really complex. So hopefully, you know, some good positive outcome will come from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with um, with me ab- about the work that you're doing. And I, I want to give you a chance to brag if you want. I know that Samvita has had some kind of exciting updates recently. So are those things that you can share with the audience before we wrap up for the day? Happy to. I mean, uh, as a CEO, you, you, you always take the opportunity, right? <laughs> but all the bragging, I think it's, it just goes, credit goes to the, to our team, uh, who are making these things happen. We just had a press release, uh, yesterday about a DOE grant we received for the lithium program, actually, mm-hmm. um, along with our partners, uh, you know, Lithium Americas, Arizona Lithium, Ioneer, really looking forward to working with them to making that a commercial solution for local extraction of lithium in the U.S. Um, from clay. So that's that's a really exciting work on the way, as well as, I mean, the, the United announcement that was just a few weeks ago. And right now, everyone inside the company is just so busy working through, okay, the building of the uh, demonstration plant and the scale-up that needs to happen between now and 29, where we would d- deliver that first batch um, to them. What so, yeah. is the United announcement, though, for folks that haven't seen this? Yeah, so it's basically an off-take agreement for 1 billion gallons of uh, sustainable aviation fuel across 20 years. Wow. Um, so Huge. It's a massive amount, but it's was selected because of some intricate planning that we have been doing with them and other partners. We're very excited about it. It's going to have a huge impact. Uh, but, you know, the pressure is on too to deliver. So, <laughs> you know, at the same time, that's, that's what makes this, this thing exciting, right? To start from the very idea to engage with like-minded companies, set up collaborative pathways and then, um, involve, you know, investors and others to actually go and do it. And creating, but it's, it all comes out to creating this version of the future that doesn't exist today, which should exist. And we have agency, right? It's not something that is just happens because, because time goes by. It's creating it. Absolutely. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. So thank you to everyone for listening to my conversation with Moji about their journey and about Samvita. If you'd like to learn more about Samvita or connect with Moji, 
sounds like LinkedIn is the best way to do that or the Semvita website. If you'd like to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can find us at climatecapital.co. Moji, what's what's the um, website for Semvita? Do you want to share the link there? Yeah, it's just uh, semvita.com, C-E-M-V-I-T-A.com. Easy. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.